This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit chalcedon.edu to download this book in PDF or to purchase this book. God's Plan for Victory The Meaning of Postmillennialism by Rusus John Rustuni Chalcedon Foundation, Vallecito, California, 95251 Copyright 1997 by Rusus John Rustuni Chapter 2 Vitality in Christian Faith A study of hospital patients in a relationship to their life expectancy reportedly came to the conclusion that there was a strong correlation between life expectancy and future-oriented thinking. A man whose mind looked ahead to the activities a year hence was more likely to live than one whose thinking was only in terms of a daily hospital routine. Those without a future in mind had no future as a rule. This conclusion should not surprise us. Man, having been created in the image of God, is created with a mind which is not chained to the moment. Physically, man is bound to the hour. He cannot step backward in time to ages past, nor can he move into the future by a sudden leap, jumping over intervening years in a second. For the Almighty God... All history is present before him. God is not bound by time, because he is the creator of time, as of all things. Before the foundation of the world, he ordained and decreed all things that came to pass, so the beginning and end of creation are always totally before him. God is beyond history, but not a second nor a hair of all history is ever beyond him or outside of his government and vision. He is the Lord. The Almighty. Because man is created in the image of God, man has intellectually this same ability on a creaturely level. He can see, as a glass darkly, the beginning and the end, when his thinking and vision are governed by God and His Word. Even without faith, man thinks and plans, studies history, himself, and it's not chained to the moment. However, without faith in God, man loses the meaning of the moment as well as of the past meaning therein. He retreats from time and history into a convent world, which, because it does not exist, means then a retreat into death. Ellenberger has written, quote, What we call the feeling of the, quote, meaning of life, unquote, cannot be understood independently of the subjective feeling of experienced time. Distortions of the feeling of time necessarily result in distortions of the meaning of life. Normally, we look upon the future not only for itself, but also for compensating and correcting the past and the present. We reckon on the future for paying our debts, achieving success, enjoying life becoming good Christians. Wherever the future becomes empty, as with maniacs and certain psychopaths, life is a perpetual gamble and the advantage of the present minute is taken into consideration. Wherever the future is inaccessible or blocked, as with the depressed, hope necessarily disappears and life loses all meaning. A future-oriented faith Thus, means a perspective which plans to correct past errors in future action, but also to rebuild in the future without those errors or sins. 
To the degree that future orientation is lacking in society, to that extent, it is not only stagnant, but lacks vitality to correct and rebuild. Minkowski, in discussing a case of schizophrenic depression, says of the patient, There was no action or desire which, emanating from the present, reached out to the future, spanning the dull, similar days. As a result, each day kept an unusual independence. Failing to be immersed in the perception of any life continuity, each day began life anew, like a solitary island in a gray sea of passing time. What had been done, lived, and spoken no longer played the same role in our life because there seemed to be no wish to go further. Every day was an exasperating monotony of the same words, the same complaints, until one felt that this being had lost all sense of necessary continuity. Such was the march of time for him. However, our picture is still incomplete. An essential element is missing in it. The fact the future was blocked by certainty of a terrifying and destructive event. This certainty dominated the patient's entire outlook, and absolutely all of his energy was attached to the inevitable event. The same is true of non-schizoid people. In 1972, more than a few people reported to me their concern over friends and relations, who, lacking any faith, had read Gary Allen's None Dare Call It a Conspiracy, written in 1972, and had concluded that a dreadful seizure of all things by the semi-omnipotent mythical insiders awaits the world. The reaction became, at times, suicidal. Their ability to work and to function was impaired, and they lived a minimal life of fear and dread. We must recognize that the premillennial hope is not on the same level. It has, indeed, its dreaded event, the Great Tribulation, some hold that the church will be, quote, raptured, unquote, before the tribulation, others during and some after. The, quote, rapture, unquote, however, is a blessed event, a delivery into heaven. This hope, however, is personal and not social. The world as a whole is seen as on a futile course, so that there is no hope of any kind of social action, nor in Christian Reconstruction. As a result, there is a purely otherworldly orientation and a contempt for history and for time. Amillennialism has no rapture, but sees history deteriorating steadily into the end. And as a result, it has, not surprisingly, created churches moving into decline and paralysis. Thus, both amillennialism and premillennialism have the same social impact as the schizophrenic depression. They produce a blocked future, a future which offers no hope with respect to history and time. But they do have a hope with respect to eternity. However, we have a right to ask of many of them how valid their hope is since our Lord emphatically declares that the test of faith is a very practical one. Do men bear good fruit here and now? 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Quote, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, unquote, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, is simply the results of God's chastening of his sons to cleanse them of fruitlessness and to lead them into righteousness. And it means results here and now. Quote, the night cometh when no man can work, unquote, John 9 and verse 4. If Christians have a blocked future, then the world is in a fearful condition because it is Christians who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 15. The impact of eschatology on man has been noted of late by various historians. Thus, Gary North has written, The Puritans of the first generation were motivated with a post-millennial vision of earthly victory. They were to reform the world through preaching and godly reconstruction. By 1660, a radical pessimism had replaced the earlier eschatological optimism. The younger generation had not been reconverted in terms of the charismatic requirements of the Christian experience. A hostile king was back on the throne of England. The Holy Commonwealth seemed to be collapsing. The inherited canons of medieval economics seemed inapplicable. No one knew how to deal with the economic crises, upward social mobility, and market laws like profit and loss. A kind of social antinomianism set in, as pastors preached general sermons against non-specific sins, but avoided offering concrete alternatives to the collapsing medieval framework. Eschatological pessimism combined with social antinomianism to produce later Puritan pietism. Marked most dramatically by the Mathers' premillennial, emotional, and defeated in politics. Increase in Cotton Mather turned to the preaching of individual salvation and the creation of voluntary self-help societies. Franklin learned from Cotton Mather the importance of doing good. He did not grasp the theology that Cotton relied upon in doing of the human good. End quote. A central force which led to the stand by the colonies against the usurpations of power over them by the English Parliament was a renewed post-millennialism. Jonathan Edwards held that the latter-day glory is probably to begin in America. He wrote, quote, It is agreeable to God's manner when he accomplishes any glorious work in the world in order to introduce a new and more excellent state of his church to begin where no foundation had been already laid, that the power of God might be more conspicuous, that the work might appear to be entirely God's, and more manifestly a creation out of nothing. Agreeable to Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, quote, And it shall come to pass, and that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. End quote. When God is about to turn the earth into a paradise, He does not begin His work where there is some good growth already, but in the wilderness, where nothing grows and nothing is seen but dry sand and barren rocks, that the light might shine out of darkness, 
the world be replenished from emptiness, that the earth watered by springs from a droughty desert, agreeable to many prophecies of Scripture, as Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 15, quote, Until the Spirit be poured from on high, and the wilderness become a fruitful field, unquote. And chapter 41, verse 18 and 19, quote, I will open the rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitta tree, the myrtle, the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together. End quote. In chapter 43 and verse 20, quote, I will give waters in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen, end quote. And many other parallel scriptures might be mentioned. Now, as when God is about to do some great work for his church, his manner is to begin at the lower end. So, when he is about to renew the whole habitable earth, it is probable that he will begin in this utmost meanest, youngest, and weakest part of it, where the church of God has been planted last of all. So the first shall be last, and the last first. And that will be fulfilled in an eminent manner in Isaiah 24 and verse 19. Quote, From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. End quote. Joseph Bellamy 1719-1790, saw a glorious future for the world, during which more will be saved, quote, than ever before dwelt upon the face of the earth from the foundation of the world, end quote. In fact, he pointed out that if the era of triumph lasted a literal thousand years, then, in view of population growth, quote, above 17,000 would be saved to one lost. End quote. Samuel Hopkins, 1721 to 1803, dedicated a treatise on the millennium quote, to people who shall live in the days of the millennium. End quote. Among other things, Hopkins said of that glorious era, quote, But when the millennium shall begin, the inhabitants which shall be on the earth will be disposed to obey the divine command to subdue the earth, and multiply until they have filled it, and they will have skill, and be under all desirable advantages to do it, and the earth will soon be replenished with inhabitants, and be brought to a state of high cultivation and improvement in every part of it, and will bring forth abundantly for the full supply of all. And there will be many thousand times more people than ever existed before at once in the world, and then the following prophecy, which relates to that day, shall be fulfilled. Quote, a little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 22. And there is reason to think the earth will be then, in some degree, enlarged in more ways than now can be mentioned or thought of. Many thousands hundreds of thousands, yea, millions of instances, 
Large tracts now covered with water, coves, arms of the sea may be drained, or that water shut out by banks and walls so that hundreds of millions of persons may live on those places and be sustained by the produce of them, which are now overflowed with water. Who can doubt of this? Who recollects how many millions of people now inhabit Holland and the Low Countries, the greatest part which was once covered with the sea, or thought not to be capable of improvement? Other instances might be mentioned. Although there will be so many millions of people on earth at the same time, this will not be the least inconvenience to any, but the contrary, for each one will be fully supplied with all he wants. They will be united in love as brethren of one family, and will be mutual helps and blessings to each other. They will die, or rather fall asleep, and pass into the invisible room, and others will come on the stage in their room. But death will not be attended with the same calamitous and terrible circumstances as it has been and is now, and will not be considered as an evil. It will not be brought on with long and painful sicknesses, or be accompanied with any great distress of body or mind. They will be in all respects ready for it, and welcome it with greatest comfort and joy. Everyone will die at a time and in a manner which is best for him and for all whom he is connected. The death will not bring distress upon surviving relatives and friends, and they will rather rejoice than mourn. While they have a lively sense of wisdom and goodness of the will of God and of the greater happiness of the invisible world to which their beloved friends are gone and where they expect soon to arrive, so that in that day, Death will in a great measure lose his sting, and have the appearance of a friend, and be welcomed by all as such. End quote. According to Bushman, these and other men with Bellamy as an outstanding leader changed the character of their people and created the Yankee of the years after 1765. In earlier eras, Men who felt called of God sought refuge from the world in a convent. Later on, under the influence of pietism, the church itself became a convent in the world, a refuge from problems and the currents of social movements and forces. In the modern era, secular man has sought for the convent experience in various forms of escapism, retreats, mental health asylums, retirement, and many other avenues of surrender. Post-millennial thinking was very important to the formation and development of the United States between 1765 and 1860. It is impossible to understand the development of the United States apart from this eschatology. A secular scholar, George Shepherdson, in discussing pagan and Christian forms of millennialarianism, commented of all these groups, and in particular, of a movement in Nysaland, quote, like so many similar movements in other parts of the world, the expectations take a dramatic premillennial form. The savior or delivering agency comes before and not, as in the case of postmillennialism, after the battle against forces of evil. Premillennial always means a deep distrust of the orthodox forces of reform open to a society.
End quote. This is a point of very great importance, whether in its secular or political forms, wherein the millennium is to be brought in, not by reconstruction, but by violent revolution, or in its religious forms, wherein a supernatural act brings forth the millennium. Millenarian groups are hostile to reform and reconstruction. In recent church history, this has been conspicuously the case. Premillennial churches, with rare exceptions, have been unwilling to fight against the inroads of modernism into their denominations. Too often they have preferred to sit back and view this as a sign of, quote, the end times, unquote, and as proof that the rapture is near. In my own experience within a major American church, I saw premillennialists deliberately and by a vowed statement to me, come late to key meetings where their vote would have led to the recapture of the Synod. Because they refused to be involved in trying to, quote, reform, unquote, the church, to them it was, quote, unspiritual, end quote, activity. And they felt assured that apostasy was ordained of God as a prelude to the, quote, rapture, unquote. In the colonial era, Men like the Reverend Thomas Clapp, 1703-1767, took little interest in theological development and advance, and contented themselves as against Joseph Bellamy to stamp out heresy. The character of modern amillennialism is not unlike that of Clapp and his old lights. It is indifferent to the world at large, content to hold the line, to repeat the old theological formulations instead of developing them in terms of the problems of the day, and more interested in stamping out heresy than advancing the faith. The various Reformed and Orthodox Presbyterian churches are excellent examples of this, with minor exceptions here and there. Not surprisingly, the New Lights, led by Bellamy, soon became a commanding force in Connecticut, Bushman wrote in 1763, William Johnson marveled at the new lights who in his memory, quote, were a small party, merely a religious one, had acquired such an influence as to be nearly the ruling part of the government owing to their superior attention to civil affairs and close union among themselves in politics, end quote. Far greater influence and power awaits us today. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.